Welcome ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies, the place where nerdy knights gather together to share our insatiable thirst for intellectual discussions about our favorite books, shows, movies, and more. Last time, we explored the theme of losing control in Chapter 4, entitled The Ghost, where Matilda cleverly and troublingly used a friend's parrot to terrorize her family by shoving it up a chimney. Classic. As you may have noticed, the intro feels a little bit empty without our beloved co-host, Will. To peek behind the curtain a bit, Will's needing to take a sabbatical from recording for a family matter, though he's still helping out on the back end and says hello. While we miss him desperately and he wishes he could be here, helping one another out during troubling times is what being a family of friends is all about. Lifting each other up in hard times and keeping a steady course. So, until he is able to come back, I'll be dropping little knowledge nuggets sent in from him, Jedi Master Nerdy One Kenobi Will Lee, and bringing on some Geeks of the Week to chat about Matilda and more. Additionally, as one more administrative note, we've also been talking about ramping up the chapters to get through more of the text faster. I don't know about you, but we're ready for Matilda to get to go to school. So with that general roadmap laid out, this episode we're going to talk about the inherent magic and darkness of Roald Dahl. To do that well, I'm proud to introduce you to two of our friends, Colleen and Matt, who are going to help us engage in our detailed dorky dive into who Roald Dahl was as a father, husband, author, and man. Now, before this podcast was recorded, I confess that I honestly didn't know much, if anything, about Roald Dahl as a person. I just knew, without a doubt, I found great inspiration in his works, especially Matilda, James the Giant Peach, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, when you don't know anything about anything, it's frankly best to listen. So, without further ado, let's meet our two Geeks of the Week and learn about Roald Dahl together. Hello, Bohemian Geek Studies listeners. Colleen here, guest starring on one of my favorite podcasts. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Will and Sarah for letting a rowdy Gryffindor into their uber-cool Ravenclaw circle. It's so fun to talk about the geeky things I love, especially if it's a book near and dear to my heart, like Matilda. But before I get started on my chosen theme of inherent darkness in Roald Dahl, his work, and Matilda in particular, I'd like to share my own How I Became a Reader of Books story. Just like Will and Sarah, and our other esteemed guests, of course, I love reading and started reading really young. My initial love of books came from my mom. She would read to me and my brother every night before bed. We would snuggle in as she picked up the chosen book. My bro and I usually got to switch off, although because he was the baby, he got to pick two in a row sometimes. No hard feelings, of course. And we would listen to her do all the voices and marvel at the stories. My brother usually picked books with dragons and dinosaurs, sometimes the army, sometimes not, sometimes history, but I really liked the old illustrated classics like Little Women, Black Beauty, Call of the Wild, those kind of things. My mom must have wondered where a five and six-year-old got their tastes, but she could blame my dad for that. He had us watch the Discovery Channel and the History Channel ad nauseum, so we pretty much had a curiosity about everything. She eventually would read what we wanted, although she did put her foot down on a couple of things, such as me wanting to read White Fang right after we had just done Call of the Wild. By seven, not four, not quite as advanced as Matilda in this area, but it's still pretty early to be reading on my own, I could read and tear through pretty much anything I found in the library. Magazines, chapter books, picture books, anything. My mom would set it down in front of me, or I would pick it out, and it would be done in a matter of minutes. 
But I was usually frustrated because the stories I really wanted to read were in the big books, the ones I couldn't reach. We weren't allowed a footstool if we were under 10, and if the librarian caught you, you could get kicked out of the library. Also, this librarian, she was fairly draconian, a little bit Dolores Umbridge, mixed in with the usual kind of scary librarian who would tell you that all of your books were going to be late. I remember this one particularly nasty entanglement. I wanted this compendium of scary stories to tell in the dark. You know, they're kind of okay for kids, but really not because they are nightmare inducing. She basically told me they were in the restriction section. After I'd gone up to the desk, super excited because I had these big grown-up scary books and I was going to read them all by myself. But she didn't know that I had an ace up my sleeve. All I had to do was ask my mom to get them for me, and she did. We Gryffindors can be crafty every once in a while. And again, the nightmares did come, but that's okay because I still love horror. I'm still enchanted by it. Uh, You should see my Stephen King collection. It's quite extensive. Stephen King also has his own telekinetic heroine, Carrie. Although her book ends a little differently than Matilda, you can see the connections here, a powerful young woman stepping into her own. Matilda is easily my favorite doll book. I've read all of them, The Witches, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I do like them a Fantastic Mr. Fox, but Matilda just stands head and shoulders above the rest. There's a female protagonist, she struggles against authority, she's determined, she loves reading. All these things pulled me in as a young reader and are still relevant in my adult life. All of us nerds and geeks have had those moments when our enthusiasm is met with scorn or laughter, where a quote-unquote normal person scoffs at something we love. Matilda experiences this with her parents in the first part of the books, when she's dealing with reading in front of them and trying not to watch the television. Why doesn't she like the television like another quote-unquote normal person? Stop doing math better than your brother. You must be a cheat because you did that math way too quickly. During the time this book is most likely set, Sarah and Will had talked about this in previous pods, it was probably not that great for a girl to be good at math, or at least not seen to be that great. A girl shouldn't be good at arithmetic and science. That was for the boys. But whether she's reading a book or watching TV, what really matters is Matilda's precociousness. She belongs to a long line of smarter-than-what's-good-for-them child characters, from Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, Arya Stark in Game of Thrones, Lisa Simpson, and Shirley of Green Gables, And let's throw a boy in there, Ezra Bridger from Star Wars Rebels. The idea of a child who's smarter than their adult counterparts is commonplace in literature, film, and TV. Matilda shares a lot in common with these other characters, including a draw to the darker side of her nature. She wants adults to listen to her because her feelings and ideas are valid, and she's often frustrated when the adults in her life let her down. As Sarah and Will have also covered, Matilda is alarmingly like her father on an adult reread, choosing revenge through pain and psychological warfare when discourse fails. Now, to be fair, her parents are horrible people. But does that mean Matilda deserves to take revenge on them? Do they deserve her superpowered fury? At this point in the story, she hasn't developed her Omega Mutant level power, but she is a super genius, and the more important thing is, she knows it. She could easily become a Lex Luthor or Dark Phoenix character, unleashing her intellect and superiority on her perceived foes. Roald Dahl was never a stranger to controversy, having been a devilishly handsome pilot-turned-spy after World War II. He hung out at the best parties, romanced rich women to gain favor and access, of course, they were all married, and he basically got away with everything he tried. His own marriage to actress Patricia Neal was stormy, and he was not a faithful husband. But he was also a strong proponent for her acting career, writing her scripts, finding characters for her to play. He didn't want her to only have to stay home with the children. 
He was protective of her in her career, but ultimately in the end, not an ideal mate. They ended up divorced, and he actually married the woman that he had been carrying on an affair with for years. Dahl's dual nature can be seen in all aspects of his life, not just his marriage. He could be generous, but was incredibly selfish and stubborn, intelligent, but childish, innovative, yet held back by prejudices. He enjoyed picking fights and seeing what would happen. Sounds like a great guy. But, as Sirius Black tells Harry Potter in The Order of the Phoenix, the world isn't split between good people and Death Eaters. And this is true, even within a single person. Dahl is a masterful storyteller, and would his work be as well known if it didn't contain some of his innate nastiness or his innate goodness? He uses this fight within his own soul, adding into his protagonist's souls, kind of like George R.R. Martin, the writer of the Game of Thrones books, also called A Song of Ice and Fire. He says that the conflict between a person's own soul, the sides of their soul, is the most interesting thing that you can write about. And Dahl seems to agree with this. But even if there is darkness within his characters' souls, the most important things to remember about Dahl's children's books is that light always triumphs in the end. He takes neglected children and makes them heroes, and not just boys. Matilda is probably his most famous protagonist, perhaps after Charlie Bucket a smidge. And you can tell that she's important to him. He lets her behave badly, so unladylike. But he doesn't let her off the hook for bad behavior either, even when he's championing her decisions. He gives her a far more formidable full and trunchbull later in the book, a character much more deserving of her wrathful superhero power, instead of keeping her with her poor parents. Still, thank the universe for Miss Honey, otherwise we might have gotten a more violent end to the story, just like in Stephen King's Carrie. In these early chapters, Matilda's growing power conveys her inner darkness and the pull it has. She could easily dispense with her parents, the trunchbull, or any bullies really, once her telekinesis manifests. Seeing injustice done to herself and her fellow students makes her blood boil. She could tear people to shreds just like Eleven from Stranger Things. But she doesn't. She holds back. The light side of her nature is just as strong as the dark, and she feels better when she listens to it. Miss Honey here is the epitome of goodness in the story, the damsel in distress, someone who inspires Matilda to selflessness. Because who is she really serving in the beginning of the story by torturing her father? Only herself. Once Trunchbull enters the picture, Matilda can fight injustice for others, one of the classic heroic traits. She can even help build a resistance movement and help train her fellow students to fight back. Another quick example, when Master Yoda asks Ezra Bridger in Star Wars Rebels why he wants to be a Jedi Knight, Ezra at first says to become powerful so he can defeat the Empire, the ones who control the entire galaxy. But after a little gentle prodding from Master Yoda, he realizes what he really wants to do is protect his home planet and defend the defenseless. Matilda gets this chance to hone her persona as well. Raw power can't be contained or channeled without nurturing. Otherwise, Matilda might have grown to be just like her father, bitter and scornful, angry at a world that didn't understand her. It's so important to show these themes in children's literature, as Dahl proves through Matilda's arc. It's part of growing up, learning to be a force for good in the world while balancing the anger, fear, and depression these negative emotions can bring on. It's not wrong to have these emotions, not at all. It's what makes us human, in fact but it's important not to be controlled or consumed by them. Sarah and Will also asked us guest stars to come at Matilda from the lens of our profession, which I thought was really cool. Now, by day, I'm an administrative assistant for a financial advisor. Not exactly the most exciting angle to be coming at at this book. So I chose my secondary profession. I am an author, so I came at this from the lens of an author and English major. Basically, what I'm looking for in any work, it doesn't matter if it's kids lit, adult lit, comic books, anything, I'm looking for the craft, the bones that piece the story together. I'm looking for techniques. 
Now, Roald Dahl is really great at humor. He's great at visual imagery. He can pull you into a story with ease. And he also uses allusions, particularly in Matilda, because this is a protagonist that reads, so he's going to utilize as many tools in his kit as he can. He alludes to Dickens, Austen, Hardy, Hemingway, Faulkner, all books that Matilda would have access to in her time period. And let's step into our little vocab corner here. I'm going to talk about allusions a little bit further. Now, the technical definition of an allusion is an expression designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly, an indirect or passing reference. Now, Dahl does name these authors by name in the book, but this is also a form of allusion. He's trying to get the reader to think about these other authors when thinking about Matilda. Another thing I'm always looking for in a story, whether it's a kid's book, an adult book, a comic, are the characters. They have to be vibrant and realistic, even in children's literature, which is just as important as adult literature. No one should be completely evil or completely good, although Trunchbull and her literary sister Dolores Umbridge don't seem to have any redeeming qualities that we can find. But their outsized personalities and their delicious penchant for evil makes them interesting villains. We have to believe that the villain could win, and in these books, it does seem possible especially when Harry Potter is trying to face down Dolores Umbridge, who has all of the power of the Ministry behind her. In Matilda, it's the Trunchbull. As principal, she has all of the power of her administration behind her. And Matilda's just a little girl. What can she do? Dahl is also adept at symbolism. He uses the extremes of Trunchbull and Miss Honey as the angel and devil on Matilda's shoulders. Now, she could become Trunchbull, a power-mad, seemingly superpowered authoritarian. Or she could become more like Miss Honey, sweet yet strong a good role model, and a good teacher. Matilda chooses the middle path, balancing dark and light, which makes her an even more interesting protagonist. When studying up on Dahl for this podcast, it was hard to ignore his personal downfalls and bad traits. You should never meet your heroes, they always say. But I am also a proponent of art over creator, for the most part. Many troubled people create great works, be it painting, writing, film, TV, or any artistic medium. While there are some crimes that definitely need to be taken into account when observing books, movies, or art, it's important to have some separation, because if we discounted something because the creator was problematic, we would have no art. We just wouldn't. Human beings aren't perfect. We all have rough edges in darkness, but we also have the potential to delight, and also the potential to save. As Dumbledore tells Harry, another precocious kid with huge power and responsibility, it is our choices that show who we truly are, far more than our abilities. I think this is one reason why Matilda's power fades as the book closes. She has embraced her choice to be happy and balanced with Miss Honey. And if anger and frustration are what brought out her supernatural puberty, they are allowed to recede once she finds peace. Matilda chooses to use her ability for good in the end, much like Dahl. We can look at Matilda's burgeoning telekinetic power as an awakening of sorts, brought on by feelings of despair, by feeling powerless. They're a way for her to gain control in a life she has very little say in. Now I'd like to take a quick look at a couple of Dahl's other works just to show his penchant for darkness in children's literature. Let's start with James and the Giant Peach. Now James is our protagonist for this book. In the beginning of the book, his parents are eaten by a rhino. Now rhinos are herbivores, you don't have to worry about being eaten by them. But this is our symbolism for death in the book. James loses his parents tragically while he's young and is forced to live with his two horrible aunts. They treat him like a servant, make him clean up, basically have him live in a cupboard just like Harry Potter in the Harry Potter books. But in this book, James is eventually rescued when a giant peach crushes his aunts to death. Dahl is pretty good about dishing out problematic ends for characters in his book. Although since they're villains, we might not look at it 
as a lens of darkness. But still, his aunts are crushed by a giant peach, which is basically driven by him at this point. Now we can move on to The Witches, which is actually one of my other favorite doll books. The movie with Angelica Houston is also excellent. It's a little scary for kids, but is really entertaining even as you're an adult. So the protagonist in this book is called The Boy. In the book, he doesn't have a name. He lives with his grandmother because his parents were killed in a car crash. I know what you're thinking. A lot of dead parents. This is starting to sound like a Disney movie. Very true. The parents aren't here to help the child out. Even though he does have a good relationship with his grandmother, he's still dealing with a lot of death and darkness and his new place in the world. Even scarier than having to try and deal with his parents dying are the titular witches who are turning children into mice to be eaten. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my greatest fears is to somehow, some way, be eaten alive by some creature that's bigger than me. So this book always made me a little scared. It's probably just like those scary stories to tell in the dark gave me a couple nightmares. But would it be as fun without the darkness that is inherent in it? And last but not least, let's talk about all those naughty kids in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, we have four other kids besides Charlie who are allowed to enter the Chocolate Factory for the contest to see who can win it. All of the other children suffer hideous fates. We're never really told in the book if they have survived, and Wonka seems fairly ambivalent about the entire situation, thinking that the Oompa Loompas will hopefully rescue all of these other characters in the end. I was always particularly struck by Violet Beauregard when she eats the gum that turns her into a giant blueberry, and then she has to go and be juiced or squeezed so she can get the blueberry juice out before she bursts. Now, even as a kid, I knew this would be a terrible end. I never really thought about the other kids' demises, if they do actually die in the book. But you can also look at Charlie. Charlie has a little bit of darkness in him as well. He is talked into drinking the fizzy lifting drinks by his grandpa. Not a good move, since Wonka has basically kicked everyone else to the curb for disobeying rules. But Charlie is allowed to atone for his sins. He apologizes for stealing the drinks and says he doesn't deserve to have the factory. Which, in turn, of course, because he's humble and a good kid, he gets to own the factory, and Willy Wonka is super excited to give it to him. So, at the end, we're asking ourselves, what sort of legacy does Dahl leave us with? Children read his books around the world and find joy in young person's triumphs over a careless adult world. So, what sort of legacy does Roald Dahl leave us? Children all over the world read his books in multiple languages. They find joy in a young person's triumphs over a careless adult world. A poor boy can win a prize of his dreams through honesty and goodness. Children can triumph over evil witches with no innate power of their own. And a young girl with immense power can make her own life and save others in return. My name is Matt, and I'm a big fan of the Bohemian Geek Studies podcast and a friend to Sarah and Will. I think the most important thing to know about me, though, is that I am a lifelong reader. I love books. I love literature. And while life sometimes gets in the way of being able to absolutely devour a new story the way I used to, I still try to make as much time for reading, new things and old favorites, as ever I can. I'm 41 years old father to a nine-year-old voracious reader who cut her story teeth on Harry Potter and is currently working on writing various novels and graphic novels in between reading everything she can get her hands on. Her road doll checklist so far includes the classics, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, and of course, Matilda. 
Introducing her to these stories has been a nostalgia trip for me as a child of the 1980s, who grew up with the iconic Baskerville font and Quentin Blake illustrations seemingly everywhere. There is only one doll story, though, that for me exists at the nexus of my memories, the experience and presence of my spunky and brilliant daughter, and the essential reality of being an intelligent, story-loving, sometimes lonely child. It's the BFG. The BFG was published in 1982. I was four years old at the time, three years younger than Olivia, Dahl's daughter to whom the book is dedicated, was when she died of complications from measles 20 years before. The protagonist of the book is Sophie, a spunky, lonely orphan girl who meets an enormous, bumbling friend and protector, the big friendly giant. Sophie is named after Dahl's granddaughter, who was born five years before the story was published and grew up to be an author in her own right. Sophie Dahl was the daughter of Tessa Dahl, Olivia's younger sister and Road Dahl's second child. Tessa's childhood was traumatic beyond her sister's tragic death. Her baby brother Theo was hit by a taxicab and nearly died, and her mother, the actress Patricia Neal, suffered a major stroke while giving Tessa a bath. Both of these terrible incidents necessitated years of recovery, and scarred the Dahl family immeasurably. And as is almost always true with trauma, the damage was not limited to the family members who experienced it directly. Tessa grew up to be an actress and a writer, but also struggled with mental illness and drug addiction. Sophie lived in 17 different homes around the world as a child, sometimes surrounded by strangers, often having to handle burdens far beyond her years in place of a mother who attempted suicide at least once, and a father she barely knew. In a 2018 edition of ST Kids, a magazine of the Sunday Times, Sophie wrote that her future husband was horrified at a lunch where my siblings and I became insensible with laughter, talking about our childhood war wounds, confiscating drug paraphernalia in the hope that adults around us would stop. Drug dealers babysitting, locked wards, and desperate 999 calls. We did our family shtick until our knees wobbled and our eyes streamed. It's not funny, my boyfriend said, looking at us with horror. But they're good stories, we snorted in unison. At least we had heating. In a 2007 Guardian interview, Sophie Dahl said that her childhood was such an odd one, but with such magic, and the quirky grown-ups who were in it managed to still bring a huge sense of love and magic. I'm sure that the reality of Sophie's childhood was a blend of huge sense of love and magic and war wounds. A lot of people have childhood realities that are like that. And I'm sure that Sophie's childhood reality was in the mind of Sophie's grandfather, the brilliant storyteller and flawed, bigoted human being, Road Dahl, who'd survived an abusive pre-war boarding school childhood of his own when he began his BFG tale with this iconic portrait of a lonely child. Sophie couldn't sleep. A brilliant moonbeam was slanting through a gap in the curtains. It was shining right onto her pillow. The other children in the dormitory had been asleep for hours. Sophie closed her eyes and lay quite still. She tried very hard to doze off. It was no good. The moonbeam was like a silver blade slicing through the room onto her face. The house was absolutely silent. 
childhood, in our experience as well as in our memories, can be such a magical time. It is sometimes harder to remember, in both the fuzziness that covers up the less good memory sense and the we-don't-really-want-to-remember-this sense, that childhood can also have moments of great loneliness, of crippling anxiety, of even sheer terror. This is the truth on occasion even in the best, happiest, most well-adjusted households and circumstances of growing up. And loneliness, anxiety, and terror are regular childhood companions for some unfortunate souls. But I believe that for the majority of us, who are most likely raised in good but also slightly flawed circumstances by trying to be good but also clearly flawed people, Sophie the character is a child whose alone-in-the-world nature and do-it-herself bravery isn't unfamiliar. The characteristics are similar to those we see in Matilda, and in Harry Potter, and in Ramona Klimby, and in so many other child characters living in magical, semi-magical, or real-world, only magical in the childhood sense environments. I am an oldest child who loved to read from a young age, who laid awake many nights wishing that I could fall asleep who worried about my family and my friends and whether things would hold together, who was often afraid of the dark. I didn't always fit in at school. It took me a long time to find my way. I didn't always fit in in my family. Sometimes it felt like no one really understood me. The place that I first found my people, where I discovered that there were those who truly got it like I did, who felt the same feelings I felt, who were lonely like I was and laying awake hours after everyone else had nodded off just like me? That place was in stories, in these beloved characters, in brave little girls and lonely little boys. I will always be grateful to Rodol for this. He knew the feeling of lying there, all alone, listening fearfully to the silence, wanting to be able to turn off the thoughts like the others could, but at the same time knowing that not being able to do that is what made you special, and wishing, in a way you couldn't even identify, for a big friendly friend to come along and understand you, and need you, and get you, and protect you from all of the scary, lonely things of the world. In her 2018 ST Kids article, Sophie Dahl wrote, When I was small, books told me. It's okay not to be sure of adults, because you have a beating heart inside you that is your compass. It's okay to be lonely and frightened, because children before you have walked the silent hinterlands of loneliness and fear and survived. Then she quoted children's author Catherine Rundell. Children's books say the world is huge. They say hope counts for something. They say bravery will matter. Wit will matter. Empathy will matter. Love will matter. These things may or may not be true. I do not know. I hope they are. Sophie Dahl concludes that piece by saying, These things do matter, and children know it, even though we adults sometimes forget. I lay awake still at night sometimes and worry about my brave and sometimes lonely little girl, sleeping or sometimes not sleeping in the next room. If she can't fall asleep, She knows that she can turn on her light and open up the Harry Potter book that sleeps in the bed with her and visit with her first and best friends until her eyes close. From the time that she was in utero, my nickname for her has been Bean. She was and is 
my bean, and probably always will be. The BFG that Sophie encounters is unique among giants because he is friendly. He likes people. He tries to help them and to protect them from the other giants who want to eat them. The BFG speaks of people affectionately. He calls them human beans. For my bean, and for all the other human beings that are growing up and battling loneliness and anxiety and searching for meaning and truth and love in the world, there will always be these stories, reminding and reassuring us that these things matter, that the fight is worth it, that we are not alone, that we have friends. did we sure learn a lot with Matt and Colleen's help. To wrap things up, I wanted to read a few snippets from some news articles pertaining to Roald Dahl, the first of which is entitled The Dark Side of Roald Dahl, and it's written by Hepzibah Anderson, September 13th, 2016, and she writes in pertinent part, James and the Giant Peach sprang from bedtime stories Roald Dahl told his daughters. He'd already seen modest success with his short stories for adults, Twisted Tales with Grizzly Punchlines, which were published in magazines such as The New Yorker and Playboy. This was his first work for children, but it left plenty of adult readers deeply disturbed. Though the book appeared in the U.S. in 1961, Dahl had to wait until 1967 before a British publisher would risk it, and even then, he had agreed to stump up half the cost himself. As an artist, I know what that's like. A savvy-seeming move when the book later became a bestseller. He followed it with more than 15 other books for children, stories bursting with gluttony and flatulence in which wives fed their husbands worms and the young are eaten by giants and changed into mice by bald, toothless hags. Villains loom large, as mean as they are ignorant. They tower over pint-sized protagonists, twirling them around by their pigtails or banishing them to places like the Chokey, Miss Trunchbull's nail-studded punishment cupboard, which we have yet to be introduced to. Today, titles like Fantastic Mr. Fox, The BFG, and Matilda, which was just released two years before his death, age 74, in 1990, regularly appear on lists of the most popular kids' books ever. All told, his work has sold more than 200 million copies worldwide. Flex, Roald Dahl. The controversy has never gone away, though. In the decades since its publication, James and the Giant Peach has been lambasted for its racism. Remember that bit where the grasshopper declares, quote, I'd rather be fried alive and eaten by a Mexican? Profanity, such as ass, that appears three times, reference to drugs and drink, all that snuff and whiskey, and sexual innuendo. Not to mention its alleged promotion of disobedience and wait for it, bum 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 communism. Under the heading Chocolate and Witches, writer Anderson states, quote, It's easy to poke fun at such prissy parental responses, but take a closer look at Dahl's writing for children, and you'll find something to offend almost everyone. If he was a bigot, he was an equal opportunities bigot. Teachers tend to be villainous, even when benign. They fail to impart any real wisdom. 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory's Oompa Loompas were originally depicted as small black pygmies with warlike cries. Female characters tend to be either warm or wicked, with nothing in between, while revolting rhymes brand Cinderella, that fairy tale girl next door, a quote, dirty slut. Rough look, doll. Jeez. Woo. Now, a professor of children's literature that I don't want to botch the name of disputes the notion that there is any darkness in Dahl's books for younger readers. Maria Nikolajeva writes, quote, He is one of the most colorful and lighthearted children's writers, she insists. But for all the funniness and dazzling linguistic acrobatics of his prose, she acknowledges that there are some problems with his vision. Yeah, no kidding. Consider, for example, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Quote, Wonka is a vegetarian and only eats healthy food, but he seduces children with sweets. It's highly immoral, she says. And then there's the witches, whose child narrator, having been turned into a mouse, decides against returning to his human form because he dreads outliving his beloved grandmother. Ugh! He'd rather die with her, as his abbreviated rodent lifespan will guarantee. Quote, This is a denial of growing up and morality, but morality is one of the aspects that makes us human, she points out. To tell young raiders that you can escape growing up by dying is dubious, drawn to the utmost encouragement of suicide, and therefore both an ideological and an aesthetic flaw. Ditto on that. Yet, there's no denying that Dahl knew just what his juvenile readership liked, chocolate and witches, to borrow some gobblefunk, the language he invented for his big friendly giant, the kind of filsome, frightsome fare that makes Kitty squirm with gleeful revulsion. And as your co-host will like to insert, J.K.R. really took the chocolate and children in stride in Harry Potter, didn't she? Quote, to return to the article, children love disgusting stories. And do adults, Sarah says. The revolting serves as an important cognitive affect function. We know it's disgusting. And the knowledge makes us superior. It's healthy. But it must be disgusting in combination with humor, because extreme violence is not healthy. But Doll is never violent, not even with naughty children in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Though I'm just going to have to agree to disagree with the professor quoted on this one. Under the heading Roll the Rotten, the journalist writes, Darkness, for want of a better word, has forever been a secret and not-so-secret ingredient in children's literature. Whether it's tales by the Brothers Grimm, Heinrich Hoffman, Lord of the Flies, Hunger Games, etc. Go on. I mean, we've all read these books. We know the dark dangers. No safer place than Hogwarts. The author continues to write, The uses of enchantment, the macabre in children's literature, serves as an important cathartic function. Quote, Without such fantasies, the child fails to get to know his monster better, nor is he given suggestions as to how he may gain mastery over it. Without such fantasies, the child fails to get to know his monster better, nor is he given suggestions as to how he may gain mastery over it. As a result, the child remains helpless with his worst anxieties, much more so than if he had been told fairy tales which give these anxieties form and body and also show ways to overcome those monsters, he wrote. The article goes on. It's not hard to see where Dahl might have drawn his own darkness from. Having lost his older sister and father when he was just three years old, he was packed off to boarding school, aged just nine. The first volume of his memoirs, Boy, recalls in great detail the headmaster's penchants for flogging so vicious they drew blood. 
Now, Colleen got into this some, so I won't belabor the point, but the article brings a few points regarding um, his personal relationship to his wife and World War II. As a young RAF pilot in World War II, Dahl came close to dying. Invalid out after crash landing in the Western Desert, he spent the rest of the war in the United States seducing heiresses and wealthy widows in the name of counterintelligence. His first marriage to the actress and celebrated beauty Patricia Neal had a far from storybook ending. The couple lost their eldest daughter to illness, and their only son was left brain damaged by a traffic accident. A few years later, Nell herself suffered a series of strokes. With the help of Google, I learned that measles encephalitis caused the death of Roald Dahl's daughter, Olivia, in 1962. He became an ardent supporter of measles vaccination as the result of the tragic loss of his daughter. He wrote a letter to parents encouraging them to get their children vaccinated, which is reproduced online, and he dedicated James and the Giant Peach and the BFG to Olivia. He wrote, Olivia, my eldest daughter caught measles when she was seven years old. As the illness took its usual course, I can remember reading to her often in bed and not feeling particularly alarmed about it. Then one morning, when she was well on the road to recovery, I was sitting on her bed showing her how to fashion little animals out of colored pipe cleaners, and when it came to her turn to make one herself, I noticed that her fingers and her mind were not working together, and she couldn't do anything. Are you feeling all right? I asked her. I feel sleepy, she said. In an hour, she was unconscious. In twelve hours, she was dead. The measles had turned into a terrible thing called measles encephalitis, and there was nothing the doctors could do to save her. That was 24 years ago in 1962, but even now, if a child with measles happens to develop the same deadly reaction from measles as Olivia did, there would still be nothing the doctors could do to help her. On the other hand, there is today something that parents can do to make sure that this sort of tragedy does not happen to a child of theirs. They can insist that their child is immunized against measles. I was unable to do that for Olivia in 1962 because in those days a reliable measles vaccine had not been discovered. Today, a good and safe vaccine is available to every family. All you have to do is ask your doctor to administer it. It is not generally accepted that measles can be a dangerous illness. Believe me, not me, Sarah O'Connor, Roald Dahl. These are his words. Believe me, he writes, it is. In my opinion, parents who now refuse to have their children immunized are putting the lives of those children at risk. In America, where measles immunization is compulsory, measles like smallpox has been virtually wiped out. Here in Britain, because so many parents refuse, either out of obstinacy or ignorance or fear, to allow their children to be immunized, we still have 100,000 cases of measles every year. Out of those, more than 10,000 will suffer side effects of one kind or another. At least 10,000 would develop ear or chest infections. About 20 will die. Let that sink in, he writes. Every year, around 20 children will die in Britain from measles. So what about the risks that your children will run from being immunized? They are almost non-existent. I should think that there would be more chance of your child choking to death, ah, classic doll, there he is, on a chocolate bar than of becoming seriously ill from a measles immunization. So what on earth are you worrying about? It really is almost a crime to allow your child to go unimmunized. All school children who have not yet had a measles immunization should beg their parents to arrange for them to have one as soon as possible. Incidentally, I dedicated two of my books to Olivia. The first was James and the Giant Peach. 
That was when she was still alive. The second one was BFG, dedicated to her memory after she had died from measles. You will see her name at the beginning of each of these books, and I know how happy she would have been if only she could know that her death could have helped save a good deal of illness and death among other children. Thank you, Roald Dahl. To close things out on the thoughts to think on, in today's episode, we focused on Roald Dahl as an author and person, with brief looks at some of Dahl's other works, as well as fun insights into two incredible readers of books, Colleen and Matt. Like Colleen and Matt, I think it is often important to look at art separate from the creators, as well as looking at how art and creator intersect. As a former lawyer turned artist, this kind of intellectual quagmire fascinates me, and it is exciting to see how the discourse is changing to recognize the flaws in some of our greatest, or at least well-known, artists. As Colleen said, there is a danger in meeting your heroes. When I learned in doing work for this episode that part of Roald Dahl's darker side was that he was anti-Semitic and did not try to hide it, a part of my heart felt deep sadness and confusion. Returning to the piece quote the dark side of Roald Dahl, Neil coined the nickname Roll the Rotten, referring to the mean man of which she saw plenty. He cheated on her, and the years-long affair that would eventually end their marriage was with a friend of hers. He could be a thoroughly unpleasant man outside the home, too. Despite his towering success, he was chippy about being a children's author, and he made no attempt to hide his anti-Semitism. In 1983, he announced in the New Statesman that Hitler had his reasons for exterminating six million men, women, and children. I'm not even going to share what he said. It's just tragic. Read enough along these lines, and there's plenty more of what I wouldn't even say out loud. And the sprightly horror of Dahl's narratives no longer slips down quite so easily. Should we let this ruin his writing for us? I ask myself, and the author writes, There's undoubtedly an element of provocation in much of his nastiness, both on and off the page. As the lives and likes of Lewis Carroll, Margaret Wise Brown, C.S. Lewis illustrate, to write brilliantly for children, an author must retain an element of the childlike. Sometimes that blurs into childishness. To quote Dahl himself, the children's author, quote, must like simple tricks and jokes and riddles and other childish things. But it's also worth recalling this. Though childlike has come to refer to positive qualities associated with children, at its most basic, it simply means resembling a child. And as the magnificent Maurice Sendic observed, quote, in plain terms, a child is a complicated creature who can drive you crazy. There's a cruelty to childhood. There's an anger. If Dahl's book contained just one message for us as adults, and frankly as kids, it's the reminder that a child's world isn't all sweetness and light. It contains shadows too. Extravagant, scary, wickedly entertaining ones. In doing work on this podcast, I've been thinking to myself, how could someone who spoke to me, a young, lonely Jewish girl, so well and so inspirationally feel this way? His words spoke of tolerance and acceptance and defying bigotry, and yet he himself contained a fatal flaw, well, several fatal flaws in his own life. Frankly, he is not the first and certainly not the last of some of the greatest, most positive influences on my life and your lives, dear listeners, that may disappoint us in this and similar ways. 
However, the great news is that we can learn great things from our teachers and role models, including how to become better versions of their lessons and better versions of themselves and ourselves. This was illustrated recently in time to this recording with respect to one of my favorite authors, J.K. Rowling, after she tweeted support for an anti-transgender researcher. I leave you, Bohemian Geek Studies leaves you, therefore, with this thought to think on. How can we apply the humanitarian lessons about perseverance and tenacity in the face of ignorance and hatred in our lives better than the creators who inspire us? One way is to look for and become a helper. Another is to raise your wand up and keep those pages turning. Thank you for listening and sharing us with your friends, dear listener. Submitting a review and giving us a five-star rating certainly does help the robots do their job better, but let's not forget the magic of human connectivity. Please mention us to a friend and tune in in two weeks when we're likely going to be wrapping up our coverage in the Wormwood household so that by the following episode, we can finally go to school. Thanks so much. Wands up. Keep those pages turning.